Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Lisette Baron Carvajal, a host of the channel. Today, we will be talking to David Witt about his fantastic book, Atlantic Africa and the Spanish Caribbean, 1570 to 1640, published for the Omohundro Institute by University of North Carolina Press in 2016. Welcome, David. I'm so excited to have you here today. Thanks so much for having me, Lisette. It's a pleasure. So I wonder if you can begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself, your background, how you came to study history and Latin American history in particular, and then focus on the Caribbean. Um, from the book, we learned that you did your graduate studies at Vanderbilt University and you work with um, Jane Landers. It seems that this was the ideal environment uh, for you to develop this project in particular. So can you tell us a little bit about this the history behind your book? Uh, sure, definitely. Um, it, it was an ideal environment for me in a lot of ways. Um, I, I came from a military and academic uh, family background. We moved around a lot. Um, but by the time I was about eight, we moved to the U.S. Deep South, the first Mississippi, and then to Alabama, where uh, my family's from. I went to college in Memphis, uh, Tennessee, uh, where I studied writing, literature, and Spanish. And then my very last semester in college, I took a class called Religion in Colonial Latin America with Mike LaRosa, uh, who was very kind. And I, and I loved it. I was out of school for a while after that, but I got to do some traveling and more language study and reading on my own. I stayed in touch with Mike, and he encouraged me to try grad school. So I ended up entering a master's program in Latin American studies at Vanderbilt. I had no intention of becoming a historian uh, initially. Um, I was trying, thinking of trying to become a librarian afterwards, actually. But my advisor at Vanderbilt, uh, Jane Landers, uh, was uh, she was, had, had this huge impact on me. It really changed my life. Um, I had read her book, uh, Black Society in Spanish Florida, which I think anyone else who has uh, who has seen it will might recognize, right? That it, it was just really a huge, huge influence on me. Um, at the same time. Uh, in person, she was so um, kind and patient and encouraging to me um, that I'm, I'm really, uh, you know, amazed still at, uh, you know, at, at this wonderful environment that I found myself in uh, to do a project like to start a project like this. So I ended up staying to do a PhD um, as a master's student. I had focused on 18th century Alabama. I wanted to figure out what uh, slavery and race relations were like there when it was part of French Louisiana or a part of Spanish West Florida when they were a little more directly connected to the Caribbean. But, uh, uh, you know, not the same as the antebellum United States, right? So I started to realize that from the point of view of Latin American history or African or Iberian history, that the patterns and the people I was uh, fascinated by in 18th century Mobile were really sort of the, among the final stages of a much deeper story um, of European colonization using slave labor, of Africans' uh, imprint on American society. So I realized that some of the central places in this story were on the other side of the Gulf of Mexico, out in the Caribbean during a much earlier period, a much earlier period. So 
I just wonder how, um, I mean, you've kind of given us clues, but how then you came into the topic of this book in particular? It is the product of your dissertation, your, your graduate studies at, at Vanderbilt. Uh, but I, I'm just wondering how much the project changed in, the, in all of this long process. How did it, you know, how did it change from a dissertation to the actual book? Did you know um, when you started the PhD that Africa, Atlantic Africa was going to have such a prominent role in the book? Or did you figure it out as you were writing the dissertation? How did that happen? Yeah, well, so at the time I started working on my uh, coursework for my PhD, I, I already knew that my dissertation would involve Africans in the, in the Spanish Caribbean during the 16th and 17th centuries. I didn't know uh, what I would find in the archives. I didn't know how much my arguments are going to evolve over time. Um, even before finishing the dissertation, I, I realized that it would be a lot more useful uh, and more interesting to me if it did incorporate Africa and African histories a lot more, not, not only studying African populations in the Americas, but also the history of the places where many of them came from. So this ended up taking a lot more time and involving much more work than I'd expected. Um, in the interest of time, I ended up actually, even in writing the book later, I had to end up choosing which regions of Africa, which African histories, because there are, there are a lot and very different, um, uh, which ones would be the most helpful for me. Um, I was very uh, fortunate to find a job in a place that had really good African history collections in the library. And, uh, and also, I was very lucky to win a uh, NEH fellowship that allowed me to spend a whole year after I had finished the dissertation. It allowed me to spend a whole year doing a lot more reading and writing those initial chapters that really focus on uh, two broad regions in, in, in Atlantic Africa. Well, it's excellent to hear this because I think um, for anyone that, that is listening and it's working, they're working on their dissertation, it's just wonderful to hear that, it, you know, it's a long process and one doesn't necessarily know how is it going to end. So it's great to listen to like different experiences and how you eventually figure things out and it takes some time and that's, that's fine. Um, so I guess now I want us to move to the book. Um, but before tackling the main argument, I want you to tell us a little bit about the, some of the assumptions that your book is challenging. You mentioned two in particular um, that I thought it was very interesting. So first, that a large-scale export-oriented sugar industry was the intrinsic destiny of all Caribbean colonies. So you're challenging that idea. And also... The second idea is that slavery was primarily important for colonies oriented toward extraction or exploitation rather than settlement. So I would love if you could explain to our listeners why you think um, that the literature, um, the emphasis on industrial scale sugar complexes and slave resistance in later periods, so the periods you initially started studying, the 18th and 19th centuries, how that emphasis is not that it's wrong or mistaken, but rather um, has obscured a previous history, the history that you're actually telling in your book? Sure, yeah. So the way I ended up uh, sort of uh, crystallizing the problem that, that I was, that my book was really trying to answer was that was, was this, that the historical documents show that uh, there were these major uh, black populations, black majority populations, and uh, prominently African uh, populations in the main port cities 
of the Spanish Caribbean during this period that I was looking at. Um, the slave trade, the transatlantic slave trade, was not only um, continuing; it was it was growing. It was getting is increasing in intensity. Um, so, a question: the question was, what were all these Africans doing in these places that didn't have uh, large scale uh, plantations, that didn't have um, massive uh, uh, sugar cultivation or export commodities? So, the models that historians uh, of slavery in the Americas have tended to work with. To me, they they didn't they didn't answer this question. They didn't uh, they didn't explain this this uh, this problem. So, you know, for example, uh, historians talk about have talked about slave societies as opposed to societies with slaves, or uh, urban slavery as opposed to rural slavery. Um, and there's 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 other models that are you know very interesting, and I think they work, but they didn't fit for the places and period that I was looking at. And I think. Mainly, it's because one of the main uh, reasons is because they're designed to address 18th century and 19th century uh, problems and questions. So, what I started to ask myself was: if all these enslaved people, if all these Africans, if they weren't working on plantations, what in the world were they doing? Right? What were they all doing here, and why? And so, I started to uh, just check the documents and 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 read as many. Uh, secondary works as I could also, um, because there's also some fantastic literature written mostly in Spanish on, on these different uh, regions and ports that was that were very, very helpful. And so uh, the historical evidence indicates that rural slave labor in these places, the ones I was looking at, mainly consisted of farming and ranching. There was also domestic service, uh, you know, transportation, especially in boats or canoes, uh, logging, um, uh, there was some some mining, and there was some plantation labor, but mostly uh, uh, what they called estancias or or farms, uh, which uh, involved people growing corn or yuca or, or plantains or um, working on uh, ranches called uh, or, or corrals called atos and corrales with um, livestock, usually usually cattle or or pigs. So it's much more labor geared towards sustenance and regional trade rather than these export commodities. And so in the end, I realized that Africans weren't just replacing. So the, the, the argument uh, that historians like to use to summarize is that there were first Native American populations that um, were decimated by, you know, for various causes, but especially colonization, brutal treatment, and disease. Um, and then they were replaced by Africans. So I started to, to realize, at least the way I saw it, was that all these Africans were not just replacing Native Americans who were doing these sort of uh, labors that nobody else uh, wanted to do or could be forced to do. They were also replacing uh, Iberians. They were replacing non-elite Spanish uh, uh, workers who for the most part stayed back in Europe and who, who didn't have the resources or the, um, or the desire to travel to the Americas to do the same type of labor they were already doing back in Europe. So so this is where I started to become very interesting in the idea that these categories of African slave and Spanish settler or colonist, which are problematic terms, I think, um, also uh, that that you know these categories are a little bit too sharp and too distinct, uh, and I, I started to become very interested in playing with those um, with those ideas and looking at the places where they uh, become blurry or overlap, essentially. Well, so, I mean, this leads us to your argument, right? Um, an argument that has two main components um, that I think are equally fascinating. 
Um, so the first component, and as the title already suggests, is that the Caribbean is an extension of an older, deeper African and Iberian world, um, one characterized by violence, for forced migration, and slavery. Um, in other words, you argue that the history of the Caribbean cannot be disentangled from Iberia and the Atlantic uh, African world, which is something you've kind of already mentioned. And the second part of your argument, as your answer was already suggesting, is that disentangled histories explain why sub-Saharan Africans became the colonists of the Spanish Caribbean. And I guess you can explain to us why you find these um, categories not so per useful or problematic. Um, but um, as you said, I think your argument is that um, the extensive participation of Luso-Africans, Latinized Africans, and free people of color made possible Spain's colonization of the region. So it's not simply they, they replaced indigenous, indigenous people, but they they made possible colonization, right? So I think here you... I mean, there's so many questions I, I could I could add, but um, one of the things that intrigued me the most is that by this period, you argue, there was not yet a consolidation of stark racial categories. So knowing that the question I'm going to ask is a very difficult one and debated one, I would ask you then if you would argue that racism as we understand it today did not exist yet or existed differently, I don't know. And also... Going back to the question about categories, so it's just basic, a basic question. Can a person be a colonist or a settler while at the same time being enslaved or forced to migrate? These are um, excellent and very, uh, very big questions, right? Um, first of all, about um, the existence of racism um, and racial categories, I, I would say in the period and places that I was looking at, I would say yes, uh, that what we might, uh, attitudes that we would today consider racism, it did exist. Um, that's my strong impression, right? But I would say not in the same way uh, because race wasn't viewed in the same way uh, in this sort of early modern Iberian and African context. It wasn't viewed in, its, I mean, in the same way race is viewed in different, in different parts of the world today. Uh, it was viewed differently in this period, you know, chronologically too. So the idea of you know racial identities weren't quite the same, and I, I provide some examples uh, of where racial identity was was you know often quite fluid, um, and I, you know I think uh, you know and I think we um, hopefully I think we're moving back into uh, uh, today in a period where this is more um, sort of more a more common uh, uh, understanding. But a lot of the literature that talks about when historians have talked about slavery in different parts of the world in different periods, they're often treating uh, racial categories and, 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 and thus racism as if we're a fairly um, uh, unchanging uh, and fairly static pattern of action, right? So in this uh, early modern Iberian and African world, slaves were, were people, right? So the word chattel, for example, uh, which we read all the time when we read scholarship on slavery, chattel slavery, the idea of slaves as movable property, right? And slave people in the Iberian, in this Iberian and African world, they were property, but they were also people, right? So, um, the, and this is one of many things that I learned uh, from uh, from my mentor, Jane Landers. Um, so I, I, I've still never been able to find the equivalent uh, of a word for chattel in Spanish or Portuguese. I don't think it exists. Another thing to consider is that Iberians themselves could be enslaved. Um, not only in, say, or, uh, North Africa or the Ottoman world, 
But Iberians in this period and Iberia could be enslaved if they had Muslim ancestors, right? So, um, so there's a, a you know, as I as I mentioned earlier, one big recurring theme in the book involves looking, trying to look closely at these fuzzy or blurry spaces, in which the categories of African and Iberian uh, kind of overlap, and uh, and and slavery is one. Uh, one place where we start to see some some interesting and uh, nuanced spaces that we're not used to talking about um, in the 19th century, for example. So, um, at the same time, as I see these uh, uh, this need for nuance when we talk about who can be a slave uh, and, and racial categories, at the same time, there is plenty of evidence for the brutal treatment of enslaved people and unequal treatment. Uh, towards people of African origin or people who are described as black or or brown, right? So a lot, I think a lot depends on how we today choose to interpret that evidence and how much we assume that this world that existed 400 years ago basically resembles uh, the 20th century United States, for example. After some time, I came to believe that it did not uh, resemble that world, but other people would uh, could focus on the, um, you know, I think justifiably focus on the on the similarities, um, though I, I, I chose not to. So onto the terms of uh, colonist or settler, right? So when I use those terms in the book, I definitely try to qualify them, right? So for example, I will say... Um, uh, surrogate settler, right? Um, when applying them to African people who were in the Caribbean uh, completely against their will, completely involuntarily in the first place, right? One of one other of the book's sort of recurring themes is that Africans' experiences were very often ambiguous. Um, so whereas I studied and uh, and and began with uh, uh, these sort of paradigms of oppression and resistance, right? But I think these paradigm, the paradigms don't really explain how these societies functioned um, when Spanish these major Spanish Caribbean port cities uh, were sort of their existence was pre- existence was predicated on a majority of population of African and African descended people who who essentially carried out <laughs> almost every necessary task uh, uh, for the, for these places to uh, uh, exist. So there's Africans. And people of African descent within Spanish Caribbean society that are kind of being, uh, well, very much are being silenced or ignored when we uh, when we talk about sort of binary slavery resistance, oppression and resistance paradigms. This is to take a modern equivalent uh, to talk about. You know, I'm I'm from the Deep South, right? To say to talk about Southerners, right? Uh, overlooking the fact that you know a huge percentage of the population historically in the Deep South have been you know black people of African descent, right? So it's a uh, it's a uh, it's it's a way of creating good guys and bad guys essentially, or creating uh, oversimplified narratives. I think that cut out a lot of a lot of people. So to, another example from the book, uh, there's a passage when I speak about one free woman of color um, who was a slave owner, right? She owned slaves, um, too, I think. But it turns out one of the enslaved people that she owned, she had traded them in hopes of gaining the freedom of her own son who was enslaved. And at the, in the meantime, this same woman was paying off, as I eventually found out, she was paying off the money that she still owed for her own freedom, right? So, you know, I think we have to be really careful about the way we characterize not only uh, racial identities in this period, but what what does slavery mean? What does um, doing the labor that we associate with being a colonist or a settler, 
what is that what does that labor entail right who is really doing that so essentially i have to think we read if we have to redefine to look at this period and these places and these people we have to consider what what slavery meant for them what um what this labor that uh, sustained colonial society what it meant for them right and how we um try to get closer to, to, to the world that they experienced, I suppose, instead of imposing our categories back on that uh, time period without without considering how those places were so different from our own and those and, and the people, the world that they experienced was so different from the world that we live in. Yeah, no, and I think you do such a terrific job in showing the nuances, um, you know, in not downplaying the violence and and at the same time showing the freedoms people could could have or enslaved people could have or the opportunities they they had for mobility etc cetera, etc cetera. and i think for our listeners out there i mean if, it, if they want to read many many different examples the case you just mentioned but many many other more you know you have to go and get the book because it's such an excellent book that gives you so many rich examples and cases So now I guess um, let's kind of um, move to time and space, right? So as a good historian, you clearly set a very defined temporal frame. And I mean, you, you draw many, many, many examples and from many different places, right? So can you explain to our listeners um, why these dates and not other dates? And why, in addition of including Atl Atlantic Africa, which is Not much of a choice, but actually your argument, right? Uh, but why did you choose the Caribbean cities that you choose? Cartagena, Havana, Santo Domingo, um, Panama City. So why this and not other Caribbean cities? Can you tell us a little bit about that? those choices? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So first, the uh, the time frame I chose. I uh, I started with 15, approximately 1570. And this is a little fuzzier uh, um, because in the history of the Caribbean, especially for, for some places that were uh, considered main Spanish settlements, essentially, the rise of the uh, Indies fleets, the Carrera de Indias, the, or the often called uh, the treasure fleets or the treasure galleons. Um, this fleet system was really organized. Uh, and there's, you know, if, you've, if some readers, uh, some listeners will probably have seen uh, a book by Alejandro de la Fuente, which talks about the impact of these fleets and this fleet system in Havana, which, which was a you know, very useful study for me. Um, um, so it, it wasn't just Havana. These, these fleets, um, which started in the 1560s, they ended up becoming really important in attracting resources and population to Havana and to Cartagena de Indias, um, to Cartagena in, in present-day Colombia. And um, so they're seen as a really, they were and have been, I think, justifiably seen as one of the main reasons that these cities grew and, be, and thrived and became really important places, uh, really starting in the 1570s and, and then even more so later in the 1500s and into the early 1600s. At the same time, these uh, fleets, this fleet system is considered, has widely been considered one of the main reasons why other important port cities like Santo Domingo um, and what's today the Dominican Republic, right, among others, uh, became uh, less important, really. It sort of started to decline because as resources were were moved away uh, from some places and concentrated in other places. So the 1570s basically is a period when this process starts to unfold. Um, it's also about 10 years before the Iberian Union, uh, which is when, uh, because of some uh, political events uh, and military events, essentially in uh, 
well, really in Morocco, but also in uh, Portugal and Spain. Um, Spain, starting in 1580, 1581, Spain uh, and the, the, the monarchs of Spain, also uh, the Habsburgs, right, or the Austrias, they start to also control Portugal and the Portuguese Empire in 1580. Uh, so for this period of about 60 years, the Spanish and Portuguese empires are theoretically separate, but they are governed by the same monarchs. Um, and there is a, a period of really intense um, interaction and collaboration between uh, the Spanish and Portuguese overseas uh, uh, worlds, right? And this was already unfolding before 1580, but it seems to have intensified a lot in the 1580s. Uh, and this, and it lasts. So now, the reason I ended in 1640, it lasts until 1640. Um, there are certainly um, continued echoes and repercussions of this period afterwards. But in 1640, uh, the Portuguese uh, um, Braganza, this this um, new you know, dynasty in Portugal, uh, uh, takes power back. Essentially, uh, Portugal has its independence again um, after 1640. Um, to summarize, and uh, it's really, in some ways, I, I see it as the end of an era in a lot of ways, especially in thinking of the transatlantic slave trade that connected ports uh, in in Western Africa uh, to ports in the Spanish Caribbean and the Rio de la Plata. Although, I mean, there are people working now on on uh, ways that these patterns continued, right? But uh, I really wanted to emphasize 1640 as an end point because I think um, uh, it's 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 been too easy to slip into analysis of the 18th century and 19th century uh, or, or, or patterns from those later periods when talking about this earlier period. So I wanted to to make it very clear that from about the 1570s to about 1640. Um, the reason I chose these cities that I chose, so Cartagena de Indias, Havana, also Santo Domingo, also Panama City, um, and also um, Puerto Rico, which I could have done a lot more, uh, Jamaica, which I could have done some more with. I wanted to look at cities where uh, there was a really strong uh, African presence, first of all, and second of all, where there were uh, where I knew of uh, very useful uh, sources, where I knew there would be good sources. Um, if I had tackled earlier periods in the 16th century, I think I could have done a lot more. Now I know I could have done a lot more with Santo Domingo, uh, for example, or with Hispaniola in general, and with Puerto Rico, actually. Um, but for the period I looked on, uh, Havana, I knew there were excellent sources for Havana that I could use. And I knew that there were excellent sources for Cartagena, and I increasingly focused more and more actually on Cartagena as my research went on. Yeah, and I guess this leads us to the typical historian's question, right, which is sources and archives, because you do so much um, with sources and with so many different archives and types of sources, right? Tell us about that. Tell us about um, one of the main components of your book, which is these tables and appendix that you include at the end in which you list people, their, you know, their occupation, names, status, um, sex. Tell us how you gather such rich and, you know, incredibly, I don't know, it's just detailed information, right? And I was just reading the book and I was like, wow, it's just, there's so many names here. There's so many histories. So how did you like get all of this and um, rich information? And like, how was it you know the time the time you took to assemble all of this all of this because it seems like a very labor intensive uh, work 
Um, it, it was pretty labor intensive, but I, that's, I think, I mean, one of the things that I most enjoyed about the, about the project was working in the archives. And it's something I, you know, I, I try to spend as much time in the archives as I can. It, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's really, it's one of the things I really enjoy. Um, so in this case, for this project, I spent a lot of time in the archives of the Indies, Archivo General de Indias, in Seville, Spain. Um, I stayed for about uh, 20 months. I had one uh, a Fulbright grant, which was wonderful. Um, I had an, uh, some other support from the Conference on Latin American History, and for some for months, I was I had no funding at all. Um, but I uh, it was it was a wonderful experience uh, and and very useful. I had hoped to systematically explore uh, uh, sources, especially for I was focusing mainly at that time on Cartagena and on Havana. And I had hoped to systematically explore all of the available sources uh, for for both port cities um, for this period of about uh, seventy years that I was studying um, in the archive of the Indies. Uh, it turns out this archive is, I mean, it's really probably the single most important archive for uh, historical material for, for now, right? Uh, for historical materials on the, the early colonial Caribbean. I also there's also really good material in Bogota in Colombia. Um, and, and there are other places, right? Um, but I ended up focusing on the Spanish archives, which contain just huge amounts of information, including um, not just uh, sort of imperial level correspondence, but you know, correspondence of enslaved people, uh, for example, or free people of color, or um, everyday sort of tax records, uh, legal case, all sorts of uh, materials. So. As anyone who's worked there could, could could have told me, you know, David, there's no way you'll have time to systematically explore everything. So I ended up uh, uh, essentially doing what I could. Um, and when I found a group of documents that looked, uh, uh, you know, really useful, I would focus on them. I was reading a lot of secondary works on these studies that um, were very helpful in pointing me towards useful um, uh, useful sources. Um, so uh, so. Uh, so, for example, books by Antonino uh, Vidal, by um, Maria Carmen Borregopla, by uh, Elsa Gelpi Bailly. So um, there were just, you know, lots of books that were very, very useful for me. And so they gave me good pointers. Um, but every now and then I would stumble up, up upon a big group of documents that hadn't been worked by any before, like uh, royal officials' letters. So they're always interested in uh, talking about... Um, are writing about whatever economic activity brings them money for the Spanish crown. So for Havana, this there's a lot of information on uh, royal slaves, on enslaved people owned by the crown, uh, which was interesting, right, and useful. But in Cartagena, the big uh, money-making uh, industry was the transatlantic slave trade. So I found that the royal officials of Cartagena had lots and lots and lots of letters about slave trading and about the traffic in enslaved Africans. So I, you know, I just uh, eventually I had a list of kind of my my top picks, I guess, my my favorite documents, and I tried to uh, to bring those into the story as much as possible. Yeah, and I think you, I mean, you managed to get so many histories in the book um, that is remarkable, and the appendix and the and the tables gives a sense of the vastness of the project, right? Um, so now that we've discussed this big picture. I guess it's important to flag to our readers that though your book is not technically divided in parts or sections, you do say that the first half of the book, that is the first three chapters, illustrate the degree to which Spanish and Caribbean society during this period was an extension of the Luso-African Atlantic world. 
So please talk to us about this section, and in particular about the events and precedents in Upper Guinea and West Central Africa, events you discuss in Chapter 1 and 2, respectively. So how are the histories of these regions different from one another, and how does that difference um, explains what later, you know, what happened in the Caribbean, because I think they have very different stories, right? Um, I was so fascinated by how you were able to trace histories, names, ethnonyms, and toponyms of Upper Guinean men and women, and how you were not able to do the same, because it's then you will explain us why you, you couldn't do the same with uh, West Central Africa. And so um, I was also struck by how you know, much more violent things uh, were in West Central Africa. So can you tell us about those differences between those two regions and just introduce us a little bit um, to the histories of those places? Sure. Um, this is, uh, again, this is uh, what I spent most of my time working on after uh, completing the dissertation. And, I, and I, I felt it would be very useful to do exactly that, to try to characterize and summarize um, from what I have been able to gather, right, uh, by reading histories of Upper Guinea or, or, or Greater Senegambia um, and by reading histories of West Central Africa, so Congo, Angola, Benguela, um, because there's excellent work uh, on both. And that was a lot of the scholarship that I was really trying to, uh, in some ways, emulate and to, and to and to and to build on, just looking at a different places and early time periods. Um, um, so this first chapter on Upper Guinea, uh, uh, so, or sort of the Senegambian region, one thing that really stood out to me was, and again, I, here I was building on on the work of historians of that region, was that enslaved people from those places in the Spanish Caribbean. They tended to be described not with terms like, like just racial terms, uh, or um, or just being called a guinea, right? Some some sort of general term, and uh, like what we see in in American English, like guinea pig or uh, guinea hen or, or that sort of thing. But very detailed ethnonyms or toponyms. Uh, so, um, for example, uh, biafara or or uh, biojo or bijago or uh, uh, you know and, and others. I focused on about 10 of those different terms, and I found that some of them were very, very specific and actually match the, uh, the identifications that some people in West Africa use for themselves today, um, and well as, whereas others are less, a little bit less specific or very much less specific and tend to be sort of umbrella terms like uh, uh, mandinga or uh, sape, right? These are terms that are not so specific and have multiple interpretations. So there was, um, during the time I was working on this book, especially in the, in the late 90s, really, and, and then in the early 2000s, there was a lot of debate among historians of uh, diasporic African peoples. What do these terms mean? How much trust can we put in these terms? Um, uh, to what extent were they just really terms used by slave traders uh, or terms used to, uh, that, that, that grew up during the slave trade and terms that, uh, that later Africans in the Americas used themselves and appropriated those terms uh, uh, to talk about their own identities? Um, and to what extent were they really invented uh, uh, identities as they evolved over time in the uh, context of American slavery, right? So most of that scholarship really deals with uh, the 18th and 19th centuries. Um, so, and it also deals with different, you know, various regions of Atlantic Africa. So here I've, I, I focus specifically on this region of Africa and I, and I, 
I made the argument, right, that not only can we use these these terms uh, and and uh, to sort of analyze with greater precision what were the experiences of some of these enslaved Africans who were you know forcibly transported to the Americas uh, as slaves, right? And I also tried to explain um, so sort of how how were they enslaved? What are some of the processes that might have led to their enslavement? And I think we can talk about this. Uh, uh, with, with some specificity in a lot of cases. I also wanted to sort of emphasize that the reason these terms continue to exist in the Caribbean was that Iberians, so Portuguese, Luso-Africans based, for example, in the Caribbean, and uh, sorry, in the, in the Cape Verde Islands, um, and also uh, uh, Spanish uh, uh, people had all sorts of different uh, um, relationships of trade, diplomacy, uh, evangelization uh, uh, projects. Um, with people all along the Upper Guinea coast and the rivers of, of Guinea, as they were called, um, in addition to slaving and slave trading. And Iberians didn't really have this position in the 16th century or the early 17th century where they could impose their will on African peoples at all, right? Um, so and this is not my discovery. Other, As I said, historians of Western Africa have written about this. Um, but I wanted to... Uh, uh, Explore right what happens when we take that context and uh, as it starts to become transposed into the Caribbean, right? And we see these patterns of cross-cultural exchange that already exist, multiple lang- a lot of different languages, um, and multiple identities among people from that region of West Africa. What happens when that comes over to the um, Spanish Caribbean also? Uh, so uh, you know we could talk a lot more about about that. I have examples in in the in the book where we have. Uh, actually very powerful political leaders in the Upper Guinea Coast whose, whose names are remembered and people take on their identities right? in, in, uh, in, in Central America, for example. So, so it's, a, uh, it's it, you know, for me, a fascinating context uh, that, I, that I remained really interested in. And by contrast, right, and, I, and, I, and I really wanted to emphasize in the book how different West Central Africa is from the Upper Guinea Coast, that we can't just talk about Africans in a really generalized fashion. Um, if we want to be historically accurate, I, you know, building on works of other previous historians, especially John Thornton, right, but also Beatrice Heinz and others, um, there's some really fantastic scholarship on West Central Africa. I, uh, you know, I, I wanted to emphasize how different it was in a lot of ways. So the chronological frame is different. West Central Africa, people from Angola, especially, but also Congo, well, they, they all start to come into the Spanish Caribbean, really in larger numbers at the very end of the 16th century. And so this is often a product of very violent uh, efforts to colonize Portugal, violent Portuguese efforts to colonize Angola, to make it a a colony of Portugal. Um, There was these genuine attempts to sort of conquer um, and to extract not only resources, but tribute from conquered populations in Angola. So very different context. Um, We see, especially after this initial period of violence, we see also from West Central Africa, we see a lot of women and especially children um, and people who we today we would consider children. So people under the age of, say, uh, 14 or 15 who are being brought to the Caribbean as, as captives. Um, so different dynamics of uh, enslavement, violence in both contexts, but, but really more widespread and more systematic violence um, and more... Uh, colonialist violence, I think, in the West Central African context. And again, I'm building on the works of historians who've who've already written about this. Another thing that I noticed a lot in the West Central African case was some specific individuals who were involved in Portuguese colonization of Angola 
also showed up as captains or shipmasters or passengers on slave ships in the Spanish Caribbean. Uh, so there are there's a, a, a really direct, uh, concentrated uh, in some ways uh, uh, process. Again, and at least Felipe Alan Castro has spoken about this also for Brazil, right? The the way that uh, his book is recently translated into English, actually, which is it's fantastic. Um, there's this uh, uh, simultaneous colonization, a Portuguese colonization of Angola and Spanish colonization of the Caribbean uh, uh, happening. And, and you can see this really an integrated process in some ways. So essentially, I wanted to sort of emphasize these different historical patterns in the different uh, uh, regions of Atlantic Africa and the way the, uh, that they were reflected differently um, uh, in the Spanish Caribbean, the sort of overlapping patterns. Um, and, you know, when I go into a lot more detail about what happens when you have mostly most of the enslaved African population being upper Guineans uh, for several you know decades, and then there's this new influx of uh, essentially war captives or people who were paid as tribute um, uh, in Angola. Yeah, and I, I mean, this definitely comes in those two chapters, the differences in the, you know, in the trajectories and how those two regions shaped or affected differently the history of the Caribbean. Then, I mean, we're going to skip chapter three because I want us to kind of focus on the second part of your book. But just to flag it to, to our listeners, here you focus on Tango Mouse and Luso Africans on figures that work as go-betweens and that were important in establishing connections between the Luso Atlantic world and the African the, and Africans and their descendants in the Caribbean. So I'm not going to get into that chapter, but just for, you know, if our listeners are interested in those kind of topics, histories, they should go and check out chapter three. Because, so I want us to move to the second part of your book um, that, as I said, is not technically a section, but um, you tell us that, in this part, you focus more on um, the concrete cases, examples um, in which Africans and their descendants actually settled in the Caribbean. And you show how they were essential for these early phases of Spanish colonialism. So the fourth chapter that is titled um, Nyaras and Morenas Horras, so that's my favorite. Um, perhaps I'm biased because I'm a, I am a historian of women and gender, but I was just so struck by the richness of the cases, the many names, histories, just the many instances that you track down, right? Um, so tell us about women such as Maria de Torres and Enriquez. Um, tell us about uh, you know their marriages, their informal liaisons with black or Iberian men. Tell us about the roles that they had in this in their societies and and the power they held. Because, um, as you tell us, uh, many of them were powerful, and again, that shows a connection with the African world. Um, because you say that some roles kind of kind of resemble one another, um, though they were not exactly the same, right? The, the role of women back in Africa and the role that they had in the Caribbean. But there are some, you know, similarities. So tell us, tell us about the women. Okay, yeah, this is, this may be my favorite chapter too, honestly. I think it's one of the, maybe a core chapter for my argument, along with uh, the chapter five, actually. Um, and I have to say, uh, you know, I'm still very grateful to my editor of the book, Frederica Toit, who um, made me rewrite this chapter in particular uh, extensively, and, uh, and definitely for the better, I think. Um, uh, 
Uh, so a lot of uh, many historians have written about um, not only about the Caribbean, but other places about the absence of white women as sort of a main factor driving uh, social relationships between European men and African and African descendant women. Um, and about, you know, even about sort of creolization or the formation of new societies because the, the white women weren't there. So, you know, one of my uh, hooks, I guess, for this chapter is what happens if we look instead of at the absence of white women, if we look at the presence of African women, women of African descent, um, how do we make this a story about the people who are there, right? <laughs> um, and so in, in African histories, Nyaras, or, 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 which comes from the Portuguese word senor, senora, uh, or, or it later become in French, senor, which is a little better known term, or donas in a West Central African context. These are um, powerful women who become intermediaries uh, and often liaisons and, uh, and uh, partners for uh, European administrators, essentially. I think they became they and become very powerful people, right? I think they provided for me a really good model for looking at the at the position and the uh, and importance of free women of African descent, including formerly enslaved women in the Caribbean, um, even though they usually weren't as powerful as the, these nyaras in, in African contexts. I think they were equally important actors. Um, uh, in some ways more so because there were a lot more of them and they were more ri- widespread. Um, a few, actually a few months ago, I found a, I found a new document about uh, a woman who describes herself as a, as a mulata uh, in the 1590s, who um, was actually the owner of her own ship uh, and crossed the Atlantic and, you know, and was on her way back from Seville to the Caribbean. So this could have easily gone in this chapter. Um, but there, there's a lot of information along, along these lines. One of the things that I argue and expand a little on the conclusion is, is, uh, is we can really transform, I think, the way we, we, we view Spanish-Caribbean society by looking at the roles of women, and especially African women, um, and, their, and their widespread participation. We could, so one of the things I did was I looked at parish records, right, to, so baptism and marriage records, to track the way one woman uh, was changed in the way she was identified over time. At first, she was identified uh, as being from a region in West Central Africa, uh, the slave of a person uh, named so-and-so Avalos, uh, Leonor uh, and Chica, uh, slave of so-and-so Avalos. But later over time, she becomes Leonor Avalos, uh, a, a free black woman, right? And so I track the process by which she sort of takes us on this Siberian identity uh, in these records. And I argue that it's probable that many free women of African descent who are only who only show up in a record as black or, or a mulatta or something, right? That they probably went through a very similar process. So there's and you know, there's other examples at, at less uh, at, at you know sort of more middle levels, I suppose, women who are married to Iberian men and how they start to be identified not uh, in racial terms but as the wife of so so and so, right? Uh, so there, there's a uh, it was a fun chapter, and I and I'm, I'm really glad that. Uh, that you found it interesting. Yeah, no, I found it fantastic. And you show the centrality of these female figures in their societies and the different roles they performed, the kind of mobility they could carve out for themselves. So I just thought it was such a a terrific chapter and so important for your overall argument, right? Right alongside that chapter, you know, five. So maybe I'm going to condense the two last chapters and I'm going to allow you to talk about whatever you want to talk, but maybe you can talk, you know, tell us about these other figures you kind of mentioned here, black peasants, right? And 
Tell us a little bit about how they became Latin, um, quote unquote, that this is the topic of, of chapter six, right? So um, you argue that the Latinization of enslaved Africans was very important for Spanish colonization of the Caribbean. And when you say Latinization, um, and what people understood at the time for that was actually the use of the Spanish language and the practice of Catholicism, right? So maybe you can... You can tell us about the figures of these black peasants and at the same time about the process of of becoming Latin and how there were terms like bozal or ladino and how they were important in describing these processes of becoming or, you know, a culture, quote unquote, though that word can be problematic because, as you're arguing, this was a much more complex process. It wasn't just that... You know, Africans and their descendants just like learn how to be Hispanics, but you know they were able to maintain their culture, their memories, their traditions. So tell us, tell us about all of you know all of these aspects of these two chapters. Okay, sure, yeah. Um, uh, so both of them, along with the, along with the previous chapter, both of them, they're really interested in in trying to understand how. Um, how Africans sort of became the, the, the sort of the baseline for Spanish colonial presence in the Caribbean, and especially in these areas that I'm looking at. Um, um, first of all, the term black peasants, I liked the terminology because it, uh, uh, it plays with some of our assumptions about, you know, these are terms that are, that are often racially charged and they're used in specific contexts. I mean, specific things, uh, the term peasants doesn't really work, uh, in the Iberian context. They, uh, the idea of the people who perform rural labor, it's, it's, a, it's a, the con- you know, the categories are a little bit different. Um, but, um, I, I like the idea of, uh, of juxtaposing these two. Um, so as I, as I've mentioned earlier, a lot of enslaved people are growing food rather than, you know, or, or, uh, uh, you know, ranching, right? Animal husbandry, rather than cultivating sugar, the places with the most dense African populations were the ones that were least invested in sugar cultivation. So I, as I mentioned earlier, I argued that enslaved Africans are essentially replacing people who would be considered uh, the equivalent of peasants in Iberian, peninsular Iberian context. I also found a lot of free people of color, including women, uh, often former slaves, often Africans, uh, people who were described by you know African uh, ethnonyms, uh, signaling that they were born in Africa. A lot of people who owned rural property, who owned farms or who owned ranches, um, which was fascinating to me. Um, so you have these uh, rural spaces in and around Caribbean port cities that are not only um, operated by Africans and, and, some, and people of African descent, but also um, owned right by uh by former slaves formerly enslaved people including africans right so for the for chapter six uh the idea of becoming latin again i i, I agree that it's uh yeah i i had to be i wanted to be very careful about um not characterizing um africans who become identified as ladino or latinized essentially um as losing their african heritages or their african identities or you know um one of the fundamental assumptions I was working under is that people can have multiple identities and people don't have to have, you know, merely one identity or, or, or another identity. Right. And I, um, and I'm, you know, building on the work of some, uh, linguists who've done some really interesting work there. And I have building on the work of, uh, historians and, you know, anthropologists a little bit too, who go, you know, go back to Fernando Ortiz's transculturation and then, uh, criticisms of his work that have argued that, well, the idea of transculturation sort of, you know, is a, is a way of skipping over African history. So, so I was building on those, uh, those sort of debates. 
uh, one of the ways that I attacked one of, you know, my, um, sort of a central mission for me was to show Africans as being the primary uh, participants and primary agents in these processes of, of integrating themselves uh, into Spanish Caribbean society and making Spanish Caribbean society uh, more African in a lot of ways. Um, so rather than emphasizing, for example, uh, Pedro Claver or Alonso de Sandoval, these um, famous, very important uh, Jesuits who were missionaries to Africans, to enslaved Africans in Cartagena de Indias, I looked at the interpreters, the African interpreters who worked for them, um, building on you know, uh, uh, works by other people, drawing on excellent, uh, some excellent resources by Ana Maria Splendiani, for example. Um, I also looked at godparents and godparentage in, in Havana. We have excellent baptismal records. Uh, uh, that can be viewed online, actually, through the um, Slave Society's digital archive, uh, at, at, which is at Vanderbilt. Um, we have great information on uh, people for the 1590s in Havana who were, there were some I was able to track uh, both the time they were baptized and the time they started to serve as godparents for other newly arrived Africans. And, I, and this is, I think, the a, another really important process by which Spanish colonization was able to sort of uh, continue in the Caribbean, where you had Africans serving as intermediaries uh, for other Africans. Um, and I've, I tried to be careful to point out that it wasn't just Africans becoming Christians and agents of Spanish colonization uh, that were uh, inducting other Africans. Um, the sources don't really let us see many times what Africans were saying to other Africans, right? So they're not necessarily straight up agents of colonization and empire, right? But we can see that they were the Africans were the ones who were mainly responsible for um, bringing other Africans into this into this system. And you know maybe they use the Spanish language and Catholicism as common reference points uh, because they were from very different uh, places. But um, it doesn't mean that they stopped being Africans or having African uh, uh, various African value systems and ideas about themselves and one another. Yeah, I mean I think. I mean the difficulty of the of the kind of topics you are handling here and the nuances that that those are the reasons why this book is so important and it's such a great read and I cannot recommend it enough to our to our listeners so you know so they go ahead and buy the book and read it because it's fantastic so I've taken a lot of your time um David already but let's finish up with the question that I've been um, doing here for for the New Books Network, and that is, why do you think this history um, is important for the press, and why do we should we read it today? Um, maybe some of our listeners are wondering, like, oh, what does a history that took place so long ago, why does it matter today? So, can you tell us a little bit of what you've thought about this question? Sure. Yeah, I have, you know, I have some different ways of thinking about this, but I, I think the one that's really most important for me and, and maybe in the long term even is when people think about themselves today or, or, or the places they're from or they're, you know, and I mean, in my case, from the deep south of the United States, um, you know, I, people often think about, uh, you know, they say, don't forget where you come from, right? And that sort of thing. Uh, when people think about where they come from, they don't tend to go very far back in time uh, in, in many cases, right? So we tend to think of, uh, you know, the early 20th century, the 19th century, maybe the 18th century as sort of the deep past. But, um, you know, I think ultimately uh, maybe, you know, one of the main contributions I hope that my book uh, will make is to is to help people realize that 
uh, you know, there's this earlier periods, right, that not only shaped the recent past, the relatively recent past, but also indirectly ended up uh, uh, shaping and influencing uh, uh, present conditions, right? Um, so, you know, I think of when we look back in terms of race relations and slavery uh, and the way it influences uh you know, and racism, actually, uh, uh, the way they influence uh, all sorts of things today. Um, some of the worst aspects of the, of the, of the world today, I, I, I would argue, are really continuations of, uh, of uh, things that happened in the past. You know, I think it's possible to think about the 18th and 19th centuries as sort of an in-between stage. Things weren't necessarily any better or any less violent before then. But uh, there was certainly change over a long period of time. So we have these, we have these historical precedents for nuanced and complex and ambiguous identities that I think are, are very useful uh, uh, today. Um, we just have to look a little bit farther back in time. Yeah, no, I agree. It's super useful to see how identities were just not fixed, you know? It was so much more fluidity that we sometimes think of today, right? So, okay, so before finishing up, tell us... Um, what what are you working on today? We met at the Archiway Indias um, this past summer, so I know you were doing some research there. So tell us about uh, the project, um, your next project. What are you thinking um, you're going to write about next? Uh, well, thank you for asking. It's it's uh, it's fun. I've already been having a, a really uh, a really fun time uh, continuing to do research in uh, archives in Spain, especially the Arch Archive of the Indies. But also, I've been working a lot in the Canary Islands uh, and notarial records there, where there's there's just a wonderful, um, wonderful uh, uh, literature of, of scholarship by historians uh, that's not very well known, out, unfortunately, um, uh, outside of the Canary Islands and outside of Spanish academia. Um, there's also excellent work on, um, well, some other places. So I'm, what I'm interested in now in is looking at the Canary Islands, also in relation to the Cape Verde Islands and certain places in the Caribbean. I'm interested in, uh, my current project sort of tries to articulate this, uh, this in-between space or a place, the spaces that are often thought of as in-between. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's a slightly different, it involves a lot of, uh, there's a lot of captivity and a lot of slave trafficking and a, and a lot of enslaved and formerly enslaved people. Um, who were some of the main actors and the intermediaries, you know, which I'm still uh, fascinated by. Uh, but it's a little bit more out on the ocean, uh, and it looks at places that are, yeah, that are that are that are connected to each other in some different uh, some different types of ways. Slightly different project, and also I go a little farther back in time. I spent a lot more time in the early 16th century on this next project. Um, also, I'm working on a project uh, separately. I'm working on a project on the transatlantic slave trade. Uh, it's working a lot with Mark Eagle and with Kara Schultz. Um, sort of on a on broad, uh, broad overview of the transatlantic slave trade uh, from you know, the beginnings until, um, you know, until the mid 1600s, which has been a lot of work too and fun. I imagine it's been a lot of work, but I also know that when we, you know, get the chance to read, you know, your next book, we will enjoy it as much as we enjoyed this one. So thank you so much for joining us today. And this was a terrific interview. Thank you very much again. 